What else is there to make life tolerable? We stand on the shore of an ocean crying to the night and to emptiness. Sometimes a voice of one drowning, and in a moment the silence returns. The world seems to me quite dreadful. The unhappiness of many people is very great. And I often wonder how they all endure it. It is usually the central thing around which their lives are built, and I suppose if they did not live most of their lives in the things of the moment, they would not be able to go on. Those are the words of the noted philosopher and atheist Bertrand Russell. It describes the honest inquiry of a person who finds their life empty and who seeks in so many different ways to fill that emptiness. How do you fill the emptiness of a soul? And when you've tried all sorts of things and they just don't seem to fill that void, where do you go? That's the story of Jesus' conversation with this woman of Samaria that we're going to look at today. Comparing this incident with the conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus that we looked at last week, you, were we struck by how many consistent similarities there are and how many striking contrasts there are. In both instances, we see a dialogue occurring on two different planes, one earthly and the other heavenly. But what we see in both is a consistency to Jesus' method. He uses, the, he uses uh, the physical to bridge over to the spiritual. Uh, he transitions from the known to the unknown, from the natural to the supernatural, from the external to the internal. And in each discussion, Jesus introduces a spiritual topic that is misunderstood, either honestly or dishonestly, deliberately. And it leads to Jesus fingering the problem which lies within each person involved. And you look at these two people, Nicodemus and this woman of Samaria, and you could not have a greater contrast in character and in personality than these two individuals. And yet what is displayed is Jesus' reach of compassionate ministry. It encompasses the whole world. It crosses every boundary imaginable. It reaches from one end of the social register to the other, from one end of the political spectrum to the other. And what we're going to see is this message that Jesus has applies to Jew and to Gentile and everyone in between, from men to women, from a moral champion to a moral outcast from the highly esteemed and revered to the scorned and despised, from a learned scholar to a woman of ill repute. And what we see is that Jesus showed no favoritism to Nicodemus, nor any discrimination against this woman of Samaria. Jesus never excused the self-righteousness of the Jew, nor the ignorant unbelief of the Gentile. And so he loves them both. He died for them both. And because of this, he will become the savior of both. This morning, I want to talk on two levels. The, the first is to, is to see the story through the eyes of the woman, the story that you heard read this morning. And, and then we're going to encounter an unbelieving person 
who over the course of a conversation with Jesus moves on a pilgrimage to the road to faith. This is her road to faith. Now, some of you here may be able to identify with her. You've not yet trusted in Christ. You're looking at it. You're exploring it. You're considering it. You're questioning it. So I want you to watch closely on the process that this woman goes through mentally to understand who this Jesus is. For others of you, and probably most of you, by way of application, there's going to be something for you to see on the other side of faith. And so I'm going to talk about it in terms of our ongoing relationship with Jesus of Nazareth. Someone said it's too bad when Christians call God their father and then live like orphans. There's a lot to do that. Now, John begins the chapter here by explaining how this encounter takes place. If you have your Bible, if you turn to John's Gospel, chapter 4, fourth book in the New Testament, if you want to grab a Bible in front of you, page 1131, John chapter 4. Jesus, hearing that the Pharisees were aware that he was making and baptizing disciples, John adds this note, Jesus himself didn't baptize, but his disciples. He left Judea, departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. I'm going to put a map up on the screen so you can see this, this area and get acquainted with what we're talking about. Palestine in Jesus' day was about 120 miles long from north to south. And that means that if you went from Burke down to Petersburg, Virginia, south of Richmond, that's about the distance. That's the length of the land of Israel at this point. The Pharisees have already been mentioned here as taking a close interest in John the baptizer, but it's not surprising then that they now turn their attention onto Jesus because the crowds following him are now greater than those with John. And Jesus apparently doesn't want any more confrontation with the Pharisees at this point, so he decides to move his ministry from Judea up into Galilee to the north. Jesus passes through this region called Samaria. Now, many of the strict Jews, like the Pharisees and some rabbis, disliked the Samaritans so much that they wouldn't even bother to pass through their land. They believed that it would somehow taint them, it would pollute them. And so they would cross over the Jordan River and go up on the east side. And so if you look at this line here, here's what they would do. They would cross, here's the Jordan River. So they would cross over, and then when they got up to Galilee, cross back. And they didn't have to go into Samaria. Now look again at verse 4 in the text. It says, and he had to pass through Samaria. This may well have a double meaning. That is, it's one of geography, if you take the straightest line, but it's also one of a compelling mission. And as the story unfolds, we begin to understand that. We read on in verse 5, he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from a journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. It's noon. The sun is high overhead. Here's the city of Sychar. He goes right up through. It's so hard for me to see in that map. There it is right there. So he stops up there, sits down at this well, and now this remarkable story begins to unfold for us. In verse 7, the woman from Samaria came to draw water. We'll see later why she's probably out at the noon hour, the worst time ever to be out drawing water, 
is because probably she's a bit of an outcast in her, in her city. But he says to, when she sits down, Jesus says to her, give me a drink. Now, there's probably a lot more to this conversation than John records, but here we have what he wants us to see. And I want you to see the boundaries that Jesus has to cross in order to reach out and give to this woman something she so desperately needed to convey grace and forgiveness and mercy. The first barrier that he crosses is the racial political. The racial political hostilities between the Jew and the Samaritan went way back. Now, we've often talked about this. It's something that we're more familiar with, but it's really crucial that I repeat it again because it sets the whole setting for this story taking place. Around 931 BC, the kingdom of Israel divided. Ten tribes to the north that were called Israel, two tribes to the south that went by Judah. 2 Kings chapter 17 recounts the events of around 720 BC when the Assyrians come in and conquer those 10 northern tribes. As was the custom of conquerors, they uprooted and deported many of the survivors, scattering them all over the empire. In return, then they brought in outsiders and had them settle into the land. And there are two significant consequences that result from this. The first is that these newcomers intermarried with those that stayed in the land. The result was that those Jews lost their ethnic uniqueness and their racial purity. They ceased to be forever what they had once been. Second is that these people brought in their own gods, their own forms of worship into the land with them. But then they added the worship of Israel's God, Yahweh. Now this polytheism, the worship of many gods, eventually died out and now they only worshiped Israel's God. But their religion had some peculiarities. Um, for example, they accepted only the first five books of the Old Testament, uh, the Torah, the law, as scripture. And so they had no regard for the Psalms and the prophets and the writings that were in the Hebrew Bible. The second thing was that their religion was marked with a tremendous bitterness between Jew and Samaritan. Uh, when the southern kingdom was eventually conquered by the Babylonians, and they did the same thing, they hauled off survivors to Babylon, but they did something different, unlike the Assyrians, uh, they refused to intermarry. The Babylonians allowed them to keep their, their uniqueness together. Uh, if you remember, for example, uh, Daniel and his friends that were able to have their own diets and things like that. So they were able to maintain and not intermarry with the Babylonians. Uh, when the people were permitted to return from exile and they set out to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, the Samaritans offered to help but the Jews refused their help. And so you can begin to see the source of this bitterness by the time we get down to Jesus' time. The Samaritans refused, therefore, to worship in Jerusalem. And so they built their own temple around 400 B.C. up on Mount Gerizim. The Jews burned it down in 128 B.C., not good for neighborly relations. Um, so by the time of Jesus, there's this settled disposition of hatred and hostility between Jew and Samaritan. So it's no wonder then that the woman says to Jesus, verse 9 of John 4, 
How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? There's a second border, boundary that Jesus crosses, and that's gender. You think the gender gap is an issue today? Oh my goodness, it was unbelievable in Jesus' day. You know, a good Jew would not address a woman in public, even if it was his mother or sister. And finally, Jesus broke through religious barriers and prejudices. And we see these religious distinctions when she refers to a different opinion about where they ought to worship. Look in the text at verse 20. The woman says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So in each of these cases, the racial, political, the gender, the religious, Jesus breaks through these barriers. He came to minister. He knows no distinctions. He came to minister. Listen, God hasn't changed from that day. He loves everyone. He came to die for people of all cultures, all religions, all races, and gender. Have you ever wondered, maybe yourself, you know, God, how is it that you want to be involved in my life? I know that some of you struggle with translating the truth that God loves you from your head to your heart. I've talked with some of you about those struggles. You, know, you might have grown up in a home where you didn't feel loved, whether that was real or imagined. Some of you um, have struggled with self-esteem all your life. Some of you had a father who was absent, either physically or emotionally. Uh, that experience has shaped your thinking about God. And so when you think of God as your father, that's the image that comes to mind. It's very difficult to separate the two, but separate them, you must. You need to develop, first of all, an understanding of who God is as your heavenly father. And then you need to reprogram your mind and over time your heart to know and accept God's love in your life. Yes, you're unworthy of God's love and his forgiveness and of his grace. That's why we need a savior. Uh, we don't deserve the salvation that he grants to us. But listen very closely here. The gospel says that Jesus didn't die for nothings, for nobodies. He died for those whom he loves dearly. But our focus easily becomes centered on the worth of the object rather than on the nature of the one loving and so it's easy to feel, God, I, I, I'm so unlovable. How could you love me? I've blown it so badly. How could you forgive me? So often I mess things up. How could you ever accept me? How could you ever want to work in my life? But you see, that's the wrong focus. Sometimes we think that God has come into this process blind. That somehow he gets into our lives and then he realizes how crummy people we are. Bill Gaither once wrote a song and it has this line in it that I often go back to and it's this. The one who knows me best loves me most. Now folks, that's an oxymoron. One of the reasons why we sometimes hesitate to get close to other people is because we fear that they will find out who we really are. And when they do, 
They won't want anything to do with us. But the one who knows you best loves you most. Jesus knew this woman completely, perfectly. And yet he chose to reach out and to offer her something that she needed so desperately in her life. So this conversation is going to deal with emptiness. The emptiness that she felt in her life. The emptiness that she tried to fill by relationships with men after men in her life. So Jesus takes the initiative in the conversation. Give me a drink, he says. That's the nature of God. He's always taking the initiative. He's always reaching out to us. It's the way God operates today. The woman responds acknowledging the existing prejudices. And so she says to him, well, listen, how is it that you, a Jew, are speaking to me, a Samaritan? And in a response to her raising all these barriers that are in place, Jesus moves from the physical now to the spiritual. Look in the text at verse 10. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who, that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. Jesus says, if you only knew what I have to give. Isn't it true today? If people only knew what Jesus has to offer. But you see, for so many people, they've simply rejected a caricature of Christianity. A straw man that they've built up and can tear down. It's often a view that's distorted. That's uninformed. That's man-made. They don't see the real thing. They don't understand the real gospel. They can't see the heart of God behind what he's done for them. Or they just can't accept the fact that they need something. The woman responds by raising two questions. Starting in verse 11, she says, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Two questions. Jesus, how are you going to do this? That well was 100 feet deep. How are you going to do it? How are you going to pull it off? The second question is, are you greater? Are you greater? Are you different? You see, that's the heart of the issue. Jesus, can you pull it off? Can you deliver the goods? You know, for some of you, the woman's questions are yours. Lord, the well is too deep. My failure is too great. The pain is too deep. The problem is too large. How can you do it? Uh, maybe you've struggled for years with something that haunts you, that nags you, that fills you with regret. But after a while, you just want to give up. I, I suspect that's somewhat where this woman is. But here's the problem. Our issue has moved between our eyes and our God. And we've now drawn conclusions incorrectly that God isn't able to deal with that. It obscures his greatness and it obscures his ability to work endlessly in our lives. Look at Jesus' reply, verse 13. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Listen, Jesus is not dealing with band-aid theology. 
He's speaking about the deepest needs, the deepest wants, the deepest longings of our heart and says, I can fill that emptiness in your life. People spend their entire lives looking for things to quench that thirst, the thirst for security, for fulfillment, for meaning and purpose in life, for, for joy, for love, for forgiveness, and people keep looking. Now listen, every one of those needs are legitimate. Let me say it again. Every one of those needs is legitimate. But people end up trying to meet legitimate needs in illegitimate ways. And therein lies our problem. Bigger salaries, more prominent positions and advancements, possessions, power, sex, drugs, possessions, whatever it might be. But the reality is those things will never satisfy because they do not address the deepest needs of the heart, of the soul, the spirit. Oh, they might seem to satisfy for a moment. And everything seems well for a little while at some level of our feelings. But what happens eventually is the deeper needs remain. The fourth century philosopher, theologian Augustine wrote, Thou hast created us for thyself, O God. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. You'll have to think back a little bit to this story. Cassie Burnell was a 17-year-old high school junior with long blonde hair, hair that she wanted to cut off and have made into wigs for cancer patients who had lost their hair through chemotherapy. She was active in her youth group at West Pools Community Church and was known for carrying a Bible to school. Cassie was in the library at her Littleton, Colorado high school on April 20, 1999, reading her Bible when the two killers burst in. According to witnesses, one of the killers pointed his gun at Cassie and asked, do you believe in God? Cassie paused and then answered, yes, I believe in God. Why, the gunman asked. Cassie did not have a chance to respond. The gunman had already shot her dead. Cassie's martyrdom was even more remarkable when you consider that just a few years before, she had dabbled in the occult, including witchcraft. She had embraced the same darkness and nihilism that drove her killers to such despicable acts. But two years before that fateful day, Cassie dedicated her life to Christ and saw her life turn around. Her best friend Craig Moon called her a light for Christ. According to the Boston Globe, on the night of her death, Cassie's brother Chris found a poem Cassie had written just two days before. Here was the poem. Now I've given up on everything else. I've found it to be the only way to really know Christ and to experience the mighty power that brought him back to life again and to find out what it means to suffer and to die with him. So whatever it takes, I will be one who lives in the, in the fresh newness of life of those who are alive from the dead. Cassie discovered that only Christ can meet the deepest needs of the soul. Nothing else would do. Nothing else would satisfy. You can't satisfy and meet the deepest needs of your heart and soul with a social or physical or psychological fix. And this woman from Samaria is seeking to fill the emptiness that she felt in her life as she went from relationship to relationship, man to man. 
and it just wouldn't fill the emptiness. And Jesus says, what I have to give you will satisfy you. But the woman hasn't arrived yet at personal faith. She still doesn't have the picture. Look at verse 15. The woman said, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. You see what she's saying? She's saying, give it to me so I won't be inconvenienced anymore. How many people just want something so they won't be inconvenienced in life? They just want to be comfortable in life. That's the band-aid that's being put over their problem. Jesus does a very painful thing here. And yet it's necessary if the woman is continuing on the road of faith. Pick up at verse 16. Jesus says, go call your husband and come here. And she says, I have no husband. And Jesus says, you're right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have uh, is not your husband. And what you've said to me is true. Jesus reveals something about her inner life, her heart. You see, the woman is still in need of seeing herself as she really was. And what Jesus is doing is establishing a sense of need within her for a savior. The woman is getting closer to faith. Notice the progression. The perceptions about this man is changing. At first she sees him just as a thirsty man and then as a Jew and now as a prophet. Verse 19, she says, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Listen, folks, she's rounded third base and she's headed for home. Pick up at verse 25. The woman says, I know Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. And when he comes, he'll tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And I believe that this woman, who is experiencing the emptiness of the soul, crosses the threshold of faith somewhere shortly after this. Notice how the story goes on in verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And then drop down to verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. She met a man who offered her something she did not have, something that she knew she wanted, but did not know where to to find it. He pointed out her sin, but you notice he didn't condemn her. He simply gave her life, living water, hope, mercy, forgiveness. So how does this conversation apply to you today? Well, if you haven't trusted in Christ for salvation, the application for you this morning is an appeal for you to put your faith in him, to admit that you're a sinner, that you're under his judgment. Um, believe in him. Believe in the work that he did on the cross for you. Make it personal to yourself. Now, if you already know Christ, then embrace his love and grace. Let the truth of his acceptance 
of you as this child work its way from your head down into your heart. Believe that what God has said is true. And then you need to go continually to him to ask him to fill your soul with living water to quench your thirst for purpose and for meaning in your life. King David talks about this thirst when he writes in the Psalms, Psalm 42, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. In Psalm 143, verse 6, he says, I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. So be on the lookout. Don't fall for counterfeits out there that promise satisfaction or fulfillment. They cannot meet your deepest needs. And then finally, remember the promises of God that he gives to us that if we will thirst after him, Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Later in his ministry, Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John adds these words. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now we live in this amazing time where life is different, where the indwelling spirit is a present possession, a present reality in the life of every person who's trusted in Christ. It's not a matter of you possessing more of the spirit. It's a matter of the spirit possessing more of you. It means that I give up control to him and that I trust him in my life as I obey what he's asked me to do. And then God says, listen, I want to fill your life with, with this with the spring of fresh water that will flow out of your life, the fruit of the Spirit and all the evidences that you belong to me. And so daily we choose to surrender control to the Spirit of God in our life. It's not easy. We still go through our ups and downs, but this Spirit of God that, he's, that God has placed within us never leaves us. And wants to work. And it's a matter of us yielding daily more and more to him. Max and David Sapp in 1969 wrote a song titled, There is a River. Look at the words. It's our story today. There was a thirsty woman who was drawing from a well. Her life was ruined and wasted. Her soul was bound for hell. Then she met the master. He told of her great sin And if you drink of this water, you will never thirst again. There's a river that flows from deep within. There's a fountain that frees the soul from sin. Come to this water. There's a vast supply. There is a river that never shall run dry. There's a river that flows from God above. There's a fountain that's filled with his great love. Come to this water. There is a vast supply. There is a river that never shall run dry. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you would remind us regularly that there is nothing that fills the emptiness of a soul. It is only something that you can do. And if there's someone here that doesn't know you today, would they indeed look for the living water that flows out of a relationship with you? And for most of us, Lord, that know you, may we go to you May we drink deeply of this water that you provide to us through the Spirit who indwells us. 
And may you then empower our lives to be different. May indeed the river overflow that people will see that we've been with Jesus. So would you be at work in our lives too this week, Father? And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.